Well, good morning, good morning, good morning, good morning. If you'd have a seat, open your Bibles. We're going to get right to work. We are in uh, the book of 1 Corinthians, which is, uh, you go Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the first four Gospels, and then um, Acts, which is the story of the church, Romans, which is the big book of theology in the middle of the New Testament, and then the letter to 1 Corinthians. So if, uh, if you're new, we go verse by verse through books of the Bible. Uh, we've gone through uh, the first two sections in chapter 1, and you can download if you need to. In your bulletin are questions, sermon questions. We typically produce a big book. We didn't do it this time because we're doing something different with, with road groups. So um, glad you're here. This is uh, second service, which I also like to call second period, because second period always gets a great education. First period gets, well, all the mistakes. So we'll uh, hopefully... Uh, ask the Holy Spirit to uh, move me out of the way and speak. So I'm going to pray and uh, ask that God will open all of our hearts and minds and lift the veils uh, so that we can hear what He has to say. Holy God, we come before You uh, as Your children, bought, adopted by the blood of Jesus Christ. I pray, Father, that You'll move me out of the way. The Holy Spirit, You'll speak the words that need to be spoken. I pray that you'll unify us as a church more than just a group of people who call upon the name of Jesus, but a family that loves one another, a family that's unified, a family that finds its identity in Jesus and in being a family. Father, would you help us to be more united than we were before we heard this word? In the name of Jesus we pray, amen. Well, we, uh, as I said, going through 1 Corinthians and Paul, as he does with all his letters, began with an introduction, a little bit different than our letters. He begins by telling who it's from and who it's to in the very beginning. And so he reminded the Corinthian church, which is a young, hip, really immature, broken, growing church, uh, who they were in Christ, and begins by saying, you guys are saints, set apart for Jesus, by Jesus. And he continues, and instead of admonishing them, instead of beginning with just correction, which is what a lot of the letter is, uh, he begins with thanksgiving. And he is grateful to God, specifically for the grace that he has poured out on this church that is very spirit-filled, very blessed, and he thanks God for the very things that they're abusing and screwing the church up with. So it's pretty amazing to see Paul just begin with gratitude, and begin with grace, and get his focus And his hope set on the grace of God, not on them changing their behavior or him being able to say the perfect thing to change them, but on the grace of God. And today, after expressing all the thankfulness to God for the grace that he has bestowed upon this immature church, he dives directly into the first problem in the church. And this is why I really like this letter, because Paul speaks directly. There's no really misunderstanding most of the things that he says here. He's just... This is the problem, it needs to end, and here's how. And so, the problem that he's going to address is actually a major problem for all of us, whether it be as a family, whether it be in relationships, or it just be in the church. There is no ignoring or minimizing what I see as one of, if not the deadliest enemy to any family, any church, or even any marriage, and that is division. Division. We ended last week with verse 9, and I really only emphasized the first half of it, so I'd write and read the, the whole verse to you. In verse 9, 
1 Corinthians chapter 1, it says that God is faithful. Paul said that because he was reminded that God is the one that's going to change these hearts, not him. And he trusted he will. But God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. He speaks and, and ends, if you will, this moment of thanksgiving with a reminder that they are one fellowship. Through faith in Jesus Christ, by His blood, these Christians in Corinth have been adopted as very different children into one shared family. And God has designed that family of families, if you will, the church, to be a place where individuals, each individual surrenders their own desires yields their own needs to the needs of others, and contributes their own talents and resources towards fulfilling the one mission, which is to glorify Jesus Christ. That's the plan that Jesus laid out. That's the plan that Paul speaks of constantly. The problem in this Corinthian church in particular is that it is full of individuals, living as individuals, competing against one another, arguing for their own mission and pursuing, even in the name of Jesus and spirituality, their own glory. And so, there's something we have to be very aware of. Is that our enemy, Satan, is brilliant. He is brilliant. He is the smartest, if you will, most intelligent creation, emphasis on creation, God made. He is clever. He's ruthless. He is called by Scripture the father of lies. He's an accuser. He's a serpent. He's a tempter. And he wants to destroy unity. Unity of marriage. Unity of family. Unity of the church. He wants to destroy this fellowship specifically, that was brought together by Jesus Christ, and he wants to do it from the inside out. When Paul planted the church in Ephesus, you can read in Acts 20, he was there for many months, and when he left, he left in tears because he loved these people, and he warned them. He said, watch out, for wolves are going to come from within. The first place that Jesus exercised a demon out of someone was in the synagogue. Evil comes from within. Satan attacks from within. And he will even allow things and people to pursue things for the glory of God as he lays an ambush for how he's going to destroy it from within. He is incredibly brilliant, incredibly subtle. But let us never forget he's a defeated enemy. But what he does, and what our flesh can do when we allow Him to reign, if you will, is use some of the most insignificant things. In your marriages, it might begin with, I don't know, the last argument you had, but I know I've had arguments with my wife, and sometimes you'll sit back after disagreeing for a while and go, what, did, what, what are we arguing about? What did this start? And it's something incredibly insignificant, a word, a tone at times. In churches, churches 
become divided and disunified over things as silly as the color of carpet. Over whether programs should exist or not. Of whether enough people showed up at the prayer meeting. Just insignificant things. And what happens is these little insignificant things over time destroy and become the source of some of the most significant damage of unity in families and in churches. And when unity is broken, particularly in churches, because this is Paul's addressing, truth becomes perverted, whereby even perceptions of things are off. Love becomes denied. People become unloving because they're uncaring and indifferent even. And mission, like the purpose of what we're all doing, becomes lost or powerless. So I think this is a timely text for us today, not only as members of Damascus Road, but just as people in this culture that we're growing up in. If doesn't take much to, to recognize that, first of all, most of the culture, even you and I, would argue that we are more connected than we've ever been in life, right? We can find out what's going on across the world at a touch of a button. We can know what's going on. We can even track people as they go, I'm here on maps. I mean, we're just like connected. But if you step back, it doesn't take much of an observation to see that the world is more divided than ever. Think about our culture. Whether you think that's America, the world, Washington, Marysville, whatever. The the culture we live in. It is divided politically. Without doubt. There is a clear line in the sand, and it's pretty much down the middle, it seems like. There are issues on both sides, and arguments on both sides, and people who hate each other on both sides. We are divided socially. We are divided economically. We are even divided recreationally. What do I mean by that? Well, for you who are more seasoned in life, you remember a time, and I remember my dad, uh, we had a V-Dub bug, and it was like a 70-something probably. I remember the radio had only AM stations. Okay? So growing up, I thought, that's all there you know, must just be AM radio, right? And for a time, there was. There was AM and FM, and there was only a few stations on that. And TV, right? TV was NBC, ABC, CBS. I was like, all there was. You got the three stations. Well, today, we've got countless number of places to get music, countless number of stations, countless sources of information. When I see someone with an iPod or, or um, you know, some kind of music device they're listening to, I can bet 99.9% that that person is lifting, listening to a different, different song list than I have. Because it's so diverse. So you have all these little tribes created that honestly may not bring hostility, but it does bring division. We're not listening to the same things anymore. We're not hearing the same things. We're not looking at the same things. Even the church culture is divided. I don't necessarily mean in totally negative ways, um, but you do have denominational divisions, which have existed for some time. You have schools of theology. You have in maybe the last 10 to 15 years a lot of church networks. You have coalitions of pastors representing different books and blogs and podcasts, and you have teams everywhere. I listen to these guys. I follow these guys. And if we're honest, as of last week, even our church 
is divided over two locations, two different cities. And I'd be honest, I, I look ahead and I, I, I sit and I go, man, disunity is just crouching at the door. It's just crouching at the door. Not that it's here, but the potential is real. And so my prayer is, is this, as we go through this text, is that God will force every single one of us individually and corporately to ask some really hard questions, and that is this, about exactly why we're all here. Why you're here. And it hopefully forces you to ask who you are here for. And maybe whose mission or what mission you're really on. Now, as these two campuses, if you will, for lack of a better term, grow, and as people go on missions to Haiti and to Honduras, and people get inspired to do these different things, you got a guy over here feeling God move him to start an adoption ministry. It's awesome, and I believe God is moving him to do that. And you get people doing different things, like our church now has been volunteered, and we have guys excited about having a cold weather shelter, as our, our church is that for the city now. So a certain temperature drops down and below 32 degrees, we open this up for the homeless. And we feed them breakfast and dinner. That's awesome. But the hard part about all those things, we have all these people excited, 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 excited. My mission, my mission, my mission. And it's all over the place and we're not unified about anything. I have a little bit of fear of that. Because it's very tempting to identify with the wrong things and the wrong people. And what I mean is, it's very tempting to identify with a church and not the church. It's very tempting for us to identify with a shepherd and not the shepherd. And it's tempting for us to identify with a mission that I really like or really passionate about and not the mission that Jesus gave to the church. Philippians tells us that we are called to stand firm under one God. To strive together side by side with one mind and one spirit through one faith, all for the one mission that Jesus has given us. And so as we read this right now, this is my appeal to our church. Not because there's division, but as a warning of where we don't want to go. Verse 10 of 1 Corinthians, we'll read through 17, says this. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and of the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. And what I mean is that each one of you says, well, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So, Paul begins 
his admonishment, his very direct statement, here's the problem, division, by appealing to them as a brother. He has already made it clear in the very opening verse that he is an apostle, that he is a representative of Jesus, that he comes in the authority of King Jesus, that when he speaks, he is speaking the words of Jesus, and so they are to be listened to, or you are ignoring and denying Jesus. But instead of pulling rank, throwing down the apostle card, he addresses them as a sibling, a fellow member of the family. So there's something that I, I want you so much to remember as a church. Don't ever forget that your pastor, and there are five here, so I speak for them all, that your pastor is a brother, a sinner, saved by grace. Your pastor is a brother before he's your pastor, a brother in Christ, a sinner saved by grace. And while there is, without doubt, a God-ordained office that should be respected, we must always remember that We are co-sharers in grace. We are co-sharers in grace. Double honor, which some churches are apt to throw down at Christmas time, double honor does not mean double purity. Double perfection. Your pastor is not some varsity Christian. Okay? Now, I say that because there's a culture that's been created and maybe fallen into that I've had meetings with people like I just knew people. I say, hey, let's have coffee and sit down. They're like, wow, I'm really surprised I got an email from you. Well, why? Well, I, you're the pastor. Okay. You know, I used to be a high school teacher, right? It's not what I wanted to do. It wasn't my choice necessarily. But there's this culture creator. People call me pastor and then... Then there's the people I used to be at Starbucks, and people come in. I mean, used to be at Starbucks. I'd go to Starbucks, but this is why I stopped going there. So people come in and call me pastor like five times within 30 seconds. Hey, pastor, how are you doing, pastor? Pastor, you. Oh, I'd be studying, pastor. Pastor, you want to get your coffee, pastor? Will you shut up? You know, it's like, not that I don't want people to know I'm pastor, but it's like, come on. There's an assumption that, like, do you think I'm less broken? You know what Paul said? I put a tattoo on my arm, 1 Timothy 1.15. Jesus Christ came to save sinners, of which I am the greatest. The reason I put that there. As I shared last week, some of my own brokenness, some of the things that I struggle with, perhaps the only thing double you're going to see is double burden or double grace on display. Because I am a brother, and quite frankly, you should hear all your pastor's and you hear about their relationship with God and their real relationship with God and their real interaction struggle with the gospel. And if you don't hear that from a pastor, you should run. Because Paul tells young pastor Timothy, as he's writing to him, as he's trying to pastor Ephesus, he writes this to him. Do not neglect the gift that you have, which was given to you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Verse 15, practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. You should watch your pastors mature and grow, which means you watch them make mistakes. And you'll watch them struggle. And you'll watch them repent. And certainly there's sins that disqualify me as a pastor if you hear me repent or confess them. 
but you should still hear me struggling with my own relationship with God and growing and maturing in Christ. Just as you have not arrived, nor have I. We have not arrived. So as a brother, Paul's addressing them. And as a brother, I'm addressing you, appealing to, Paul is, to his family to resolve the divisions that he heard that they have. And this is not supposed to be what you're hearing about the church. You're not supposed to hear about fights within the church, quarrels within the church, divisions within the church, things where people are pitted against each other in the church. Jesus says, people will know, like others will know you're my disciples by the love and unity you have. So Chloe's people, which is a family out of Corinth, have reported that there are many fighting factions in the church. So it should bring us maybe some level of comfort that division was in the very first churches. This is not new. In fact, when Jesus prayed before He went to the cross and rose from the dead, and John 17 records the longest prayer of Jesus. He's praying for His disciples, and He's praying for future disciples. And there's an interesting repetition that He has in this prayer. I'll read just a couple verses out of it because it's a whole chapter. Verse 11, Jesus praying says, And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. Fast forward to verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That would be any Christians, including us. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you love me. Hmm. Jesus is either, you know, got short-term memory issues, or he really wanted to emphasize oneness and unity. Jesus knew the church, His disciples, were going to struggle with unity. Why? Because the world does. The world is very apt to think about their own name and their own glory, and that bleeds into the church like it has in Corinth. So Paul is writing to this church suffering with widespread self-glorifying individualism, and that's not always really loud and bold and easy to see. It is here. And he appeals to them to be united, literally, to say the same things, to think the same things, and to do the same things. A church, the church of Jesus Christ, is a group, an assembled group of disciples who confess faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ, and they are to speak, just as we sing every Sunday, with one voice. Well, some of us sing with one voice, right? They are to make decisions with one mind. They are to move together with one action. And if you think about this, a family or a family of families, because it can apply to just your family. When a family or a family of families, if they agree to think with one mind, that leads to unity, that leads to health, that leads to joy. But... When a family or a family of families, everyone thinks with multiple minds, that leads to chaos. In my family, if my children decide, you know what? 
I think I know better than dad. And I've got four kids. So let me say, me and my wife agree, but we got competing with four of their minds of how things should go. Chaos. In my marriage, if we don't have agreement on the small and the big things, not just the big things, chaos, if not now, in the future. And if our church is full of 350 minds with 350 different things, we'll have chaos. Without one unified mind, here's what happens to people. Perspectives become driven by Decisions are made simply by personal preferences. And mission and the value of it becomes decided by personal benefit. I'll serve here if it benefits me. What am I getting out of this to serve here, to give here, to do this? I'm not going to Honduras, but why should I care if they are? Because we're family. That's why. And when the family does something... The family supports it. What happens with a bunch of individuals if something the church doesn't agree with your personal experience or your preference or your personal mission, you'll leave. Enter church hopping. Right? Or worse, you'll stay and divide the church. Which happens. Basically, people stop being self-sacrificing family members and they become a group of just self-serving individuals. And of course, no one ever admits this, right? Because they're convinced that their personal preference experience idea is the best for everybody. So it's not like you say, well, even if you submit to it, like, I'm going to submit to a dumber idea, right? Because you got it all figured out. It doesn't take long before that divides a family. And I think a worst case scenario is when you may not divide formally, you decide to stay together and tolerate each other and you live as I've seen many marriages live, what I'll just call married singles. You have a bunch of single people living together, not agreeing and not moving and not unifying together. And it will eventually be destroyed. And the same with the church. Now, that doesn't mean that you go, you're right, we've got to be unified, and let's just, let's just unify. Let's just be united. Because unity for the sake of unity is stupid. I sat down with a group of pastors a couple years ago, and they wanted to unify. We want the church to see a unified church. I said, okay, there's nothing wrong with that. Until you want to invite cults in, then that's a problem. And so I sat down and said, unity for the sake of unity is great. I love you guys share pulpits, that's fantastic. The problem is that guy doesn't preach the gospel. And this guy over here is abusing the sheep. So what are we going to unify around? Because if you want to have unity for the sake of unity, I'm out. But if you want to have unity for the sake of truth, I'm in. Now, it didn't make you very popular. But it certainly makes sure you're honoring God. So the word that, that Paul uses here is, an interesting word, it's be united, and it's a surgical term. Because the division in, in relationships, when, when a church gets divided within, uh, it's not just some unfortunate thing to be tolerated. It's a painful thing. It is hindering the body. It is making it weak like an arm that's dislocated. You ever tried to lift something with a dislocated arm? Right? Good luck. 
So there's no health in a divided family or church. There's no growth. There's no joy because the bones are dislocated and they need resetting. But resetting a bone is painful. Why is it painful? Well, spiritually speaking, when you are disunified, you want to bring unity, you have to do some painful things, which is, first of all, you have to begin to trust. And trusting is very hard because many of you, many of us, have had experiences with families and churches where we put our heart out there and it's been smashed. And so you make little covenants like, I will never do this. I will never join a church again. I will never get to know people again. I will never, 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 because you fear getting hurt. So it's painful to put yourself out there because guess what? You might get hurt again. There's no guarantee you won't. But I think even more difficult than that is that it requires something that's painful, which is called self-denial. And when you decide, okay, word side, right, side, homicide, suicide, kill. When you decide to deny yourself, you've killed that vision you had for your own personal preference, mission, whatever it was. You kill it, and that hurts. But we know it's a good kind of pain, just like resetting a bone. No one would ever say, well, just leave that arm the way it is forever, right? You've got to go through the pain. Hopefully you never have to have the pain of being disunified or dislocated, but once it is, you've got to pop it back in because you know once it's popped back in, growth can happen. Strength can return. So he wants them to be united. They have a lot of bones dislocated. And he knows it's not going to be easy to be reunited. And when we talk about denying the self, this is not denying your, like, your own mind for the sake of some other guy's mind. That's called a cult. You're not denying yourself so you can have Sam's idea for how the church should go. A cult is when you have a lot of people in the name of Jesus getting together and it's polarized really about one man who's not Jesus. This is about everyone, including the leaders, denying themselves, elevating others, and finding unity in the mission and mind of Jesus Christ, which is yours through faith. Paul says so in Philippians. I've spent a lot of time in Philippians. He says in Philippians chapter 2, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours, not can be, not hopefully will come someday, which is yours in Christ Jesus. The mind of Christ, as evidenced by the life of Christ, puts our commitments in order. And here's what they are. What God commands, what others need, then what you want. That order. What Jesus commands, what others need, and what I want. That's hard to live. But that's the mind of Christ. Because that's how he lived. And we have access to that mind. Disunity in Corinth resulted from the church following the minds of men. And they followed the minds of men more than they followed the mind of Jesus. 
And in an effort, what we see here, Paul's saying, is that in an effort to elevate themselves over one another, groups of men start identifying themselves with the different pastors that came through town. They're dividing their church, they're picking teams, they're choosing to honor certain men in hopes of getting honor from lots of men. And some factions in the church say, well, I follow Paul. Others say, I follow Apollos. Others say, I follow Cephas, who would be Peter. Others say, well, we follow Jesus. And we can only guess exactly what they mean by this. Because they don't really say any more. So, it makes sense. So, Paul is kind of the emotional candidate, right? He was the guy that planted the church. He was the first pastor. So, you got the guys loyal to him, like, oh, well, I'm from Paul. He's our father in faith. That's the man who planted us. We wouldn't exist if Paul didn't come. And so you have a faction that's all about Paul. And then you had a guy come through after Paul named Apollos, who Paul knew. And Apollos was an awesome teacher. He was a fantastic preacher, knew the Bible well. And they're like, ooh, this guy can preach. I like, he's way better preacher than Paul was. I like this guy. I'm about Paulus. Paulus is my man. Put the Paulus tattoo on my arm. Okay? Then you got another group. It's all about Peter. These are the history buffs. Well, Paul wouldn't exist if Peter didn't follow Jesus. He was one of the twelve. In fact, he was number one. He was the first leader of the church. So if I'm going to be about anything, I'm going to be about history. And Peter trumps all you guys. So I'm about Peter. And then you have this other group that's really uber spiritual. And they're like, well, we just love Jesus. <laughs> Boom, got you all, right? I don't talk about Paul or Paulus. I talk about Jesus. I'm all about Jesus. No creed but Christ. Sounds spiritual, but it's not. And the first problem with, with all of this stuff is that what Paul says is that each one of you says I. Forget the names at first. It's just the I. So the gospel is intended to emphasize and does what we share. Let's be honest. God has brought a lot of eyes together and we may not be friends if it wasn't for the gospel. We're very different people. We like different things. We look different. We sound different. We have different interests. But the one thing that brings us together as we gather as the church, as we serve as the church, as we go as the church, is Jesus Christ. That's the one thing we share. I was remembering when Aaron and I went, uh, Aaron Ortiz and I went to Europe, and we, uh, you know, we're just two dorks. We've never been really international much. We're walking around, and we're in this train station. A lot of people walking around that, who knows if they speak English, you know, but we assume they did, but we didn't talk to any of them. But then we saw one guy, I believe he was in army fatigues, but he was an American soldier. And it was like, American! Yes! Right? We know he's an American. And we spent, we got on the train with him, spent all kinds of time with him. I felt safe with this guy, right? It was just a joy to have that connection. You're an American. I'm an American. We're in a weird place, aren't we? Yes, we are. That's Christianity. We're ambassadors in a foreign land. And we look at each other like, wow, we're way different, but we got Jesus, don't we? So we're brothers. And we're sisters. The gospel tells us in Galatians chapter 3, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male or female. 
There's no educated, uneducated, poor, rich, ugly, good-looking, fat, skinny. I added those parts. It says, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. You're all one in Christ Jesus. In other words, the gospel takes this I and this my, and it changes it into a we and an our. Well, what does that look like? Well, Jesus is not just my Lord. And this isn't just my church. And I don't have my own mission. Dare I say, I don't even have my own calling. Jesus is our Lord. This is our church. And we have a mission and a calling to complete together. Now, the second problem is pretty obvious. They're making much of men. And they begin to identify themselves with teachers more than the teachings of Jesus Christ. So it's very common. We see that a lot today. Guys claiming different things. Well, I'm a Calvinist. I'm an Arminian. I'm a Methodist. I'm a complementarian. I'm a egalitarian. I'm this, I'm that. And there's nothing wrong with those terms, right? Those terms are helpful to define how you describe your theology, how you describe maybe the nature of your beliefs, but they can easily become the way you actually identify yourself. It's one thing to say, oh, I admire or I support the teachings of or this individual. It's an entirely different thing to say, which some translations will, I am of Paul. I belong to Paul. I follow Paul. Or enter whatever name you want. This is the language of cults. And it's a language that I think we are too often beginning to use in our culture of what's called celebrity pastors. There was one pastor that um, I won't name because I thought this would be um, kind of like ruin the whole point if I mention his name. So I won't mention his name. We'll call him Joe Blow Pastor. Joe Blow Pastor is, uh, was a very successful pastor. Um, he started a church in his home and it grew to four or 5,000. Uh, we have books here that he's written, done studies that he's done. And he left his church recently for many reasons. It wasn't for bad reasons. He just said, I think it's time for me to stop being pastor here and pursue this other ministry. And one of the reasons he cited was that he heard his name more than he ever heard the name of the Holy Spirit or Jesus. That's a huge concern. Not that I'm hearing people say Sam, but I hear people say a lot of different pastors, a lot of different ways, in a lot of different places. The question really is, whose name do we hear most in the church? It's a rhetorical question because it better be Jesus. I mean, think about who you quote most. What you read most, books or scripture. What you quote most, pastors or disciples and apostles that have written scripture. What do you study most? Do you look to pastors first or do you go to scripture? Do you pray or do you call? I think we have to be very concerned about that. Or to make it a little more personal for you. And any pastor could say this, but since I get to preach, I'll say it now. If I, or one of the pastors, was not your pastor anymore, how would that affect your relationship with Christ? See, this cuts, I think, to the very heart of why you and I are part of this church, or any church. It challenges whether our calling and commitment extends beyond a personal preference or a person who is here. 
Are you really called to be part of Damascus Road? Or are you called because you followed your friend here and if they leave, you're gone too? Are you really called to be a family member who really participates as one and shares their, their sorrows and their joys with one another? Or are you ready to bail once you hear something you don't like? Churches divide over much less and they die over much less. But most of it comes because they become unified around the wrong person, the wrong power, and the wrong purpose. See, the head of the church never changes. It is always Jesus. And the power of the church never changes. It is always the Spirit of Jesus. And the mission of the church never changes. It is always the proclamation of Jesus. Those things never change. But guess what? People in the church change all the time. Moving in and out for good and bad reasons. I didn't necessarily want Jim Fickert to go plant Communion Church. I did, but I didn't. I would have loved to have him stay here and many of the people that stayed, but he was to go. It's difficult to see people go at times. But we should all ask ourselves, I was thinking about my own life in the last, I don't know, 17 years of marriage at least, and in those 17 years, give or take, I've been to two churches. I only remember of two churches in my life, and this is one. So for the last seven years, I've been at one church. How many churches have you been to? And why is that? Because my hope is that, quite frankly, Damascus Road Church is the last church I'm ever at. I want deep roots. I want to know family a long time. I want to see family members marry other family members, which we've already seen, and it's beautiful. I want you to know my children and for me to know yours. I want deep roots. Because when you get deep roots and you need a family, guess what? You can go through anything together. And when all the things change that aren't important, like Jesus is still the head, Holy Spirit is still the power, mission is still Jesus, everything else can change if we're family. Who cares? We can lose the building. Who cares? We got each other. That's why we need family. That's why you need to be known and not just at church. So as Paul begins to address this, though perhaps he should be glad that one group admires him, right? He's got a club. He condemns it very strongly, and he asks three very sarcastic questions. Has Christ been divided? Answer, yes. But the body of Christ is supposed to be this multi-part organism that's unified and it's powerful because it's unified. A divided body, think about that literally, a divided body simply can't live, right? You can't, what good is a body with one arm doing one thing and a leg doing another. It's not going to work. It's going to look goofy. It's going to be very unproductive, and it actually might end up being dangerous. If you don't have body parts working in unison, you know, just like going crazy, how does that work? It doesn't. You won't accomplish anything. And think about this. The only time a part of the body starts to act differently than how they're supposed to function Right? Why does my hand function like this right now? Why is it doing these things? Because my brain in my head is telling... So when the body of Christ begins to act with different parts out of unison, what's happened? Whatever part is acting out of unison, out of unity, has gotten disconnected from the head. Guess who the head is? It's not your pastor. It's Jesus Christ. That's why we need unity. Unity. 
And he asks, again, rhetorical, has Paul been crucified for your sins? And were you baptized in the name of Paul? And the obvious rhetorical answers or questions have answers of no. See, baptism has become uh, kind of minimized in our culture, I think. And, uh, but it is the symbol of identifying with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's more than getting wet. It is the act of identifying with Jesus and His church. It is the act of saying, I am a sinner saved by grace. I believe that Jesus died. I believe He rose from the dead. And I believe that through that I'm adopted into a family. That's an identification. It's not an individual. It is a... You can't have a boulder. In fact, in some foreign countries, it is... Believe all you want, just don't get baptized. It is a declaration of allegiance and ownership. That I not only follow Jesus, but Jesus purchased me by His blood and He owns me. See, no human leader could ever be lifted up that way. And no ever should be lifted up to the level of Christ. It is only through the death of Jesus that God reconciles the world. It's only through the shedding of His blood that any forgiveness is received. The pastor, me, and any other pastor, we can't redeem or reconcile anything. I cannot reconcile your marriage. Jesus can. I cannot free you from your addiction. Jesus can. You shed my blood, it's going to make a beautiful mess. But it's not going to forgive squat. Not even my own sin. We need to understand who we are serving. Because we don't make a team and invite Jesus to be on it. Jesus picks us. Jesus is the owner of the team, the coach of the team, the captain of the team. Jesus is the head of the church, and the pastor of Damascus Road Church is Jesus Christ. And that's not some clever thing you say or something you put in a website so people think, oh, they're just not prideful. That is the truth. You know why? Because I and your pastors can be wrong. I and your pastors can fail. I and your pastors will sin. Jesus never did any of those things and never will. So let's be sure, and you should be reading your Bibles to make sure that we're not teaching you false doctrine. Why? Because Jesus is our head. We don't call the shots. We are in submission as we all are. Now I love verses 14 to 16 because Paul basically is like, I'm so glad that I've done so little or nothing to contribute what sounds like an unwanted celebrity status. See, unfortunately, let's be honest, there's a lot of pastors today, and if you're not familiar with them, it won't take much to find them, who have done a lot to contribute to their celebrity status. And I have confronted some of them, and it, it, it just bugs me to no end. And that does not mean that I am sin-free or that I've never had aspirations to celebrityism myself. It is an evil thing, and it's a tempting thing. But I can't help but think you can make it easier to become that when you put your faces on tons of screens across the world, when you put your words and books and your signatures on study Bibles, and even use your name as website address, or you're working really hard to gather followers and gain fans and committing to gathering attendees and not necessarily making disciples. 
And the most difficult thing and maybe the most revealing thing is how often many of these celebrity pastors have to remind everyone constantly that they are about making much of Jesus because no one's really sure anymore. Knowing the hearts of men, and I'll say knowing my own flesh and knowing pastors, we have a responsibility to do everything in our power to turn people away from ourselves and toward Christ and away from our preaching and toward the Word of God and away from our ministries and toward everything Jesus has already done in His ministry. And that might even mean preaching less. That might even mean leaving churches so that people will not ever be confused exactly whose church this is and what mission we're on. So to conclude, Paul clarifies exactly what his mission is and is not and says, For Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Paul says that Jesus did not send him to baptize. He's not trying to minimize the importance of baptism or to reject the Great Commission, which says to baptize. Paul is simply saying he did not come in order to build the ApostlePaulMinistries.com. He's not working hard to gather a bunch of followers for himself or build his reputation. He is here to make disciples of Jesus. He didn't come to build a church. He didn't come to grow a church. He didn't even come to save a single person because guess what? None of those things are his job. He doesn't have the power to do any of that. Jesus builds churches. Jesus is the one that saves people. So as one missionary said, maybe repeating what Paul has said here, and I pray this is for every pastor and every leader, maybe every person, my job is to preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. Preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. This is all of our mission. And it doesn't require eloquence. It doesn't require education. It doesn't require skill. Here's what it requires. Belief that Jesus Christ died for your sins because you rebelled against God. And that he lived a sinless life. And through his death on the cross, he forgives your sins. But when you confess faith that he was crucified with you, your old self is gone, dead, buried. Sin is gone forever, past, present, future. And God raised him from the dead. Why? To give you his righteousness, the sinless life that Jesus lived. He gives it to you through faith. That's the gospel. So it doesn't require great skill. It requires A, belief, B, an open mouth. And since we're not all skin and bones, I'm pretty sure we know how to open our mouths. So instead of putting things into it, how about letting some things come out? Which is the gospel. You should be able to say the gospel in 60 seconds or less. Because it's a very, very simple truth. Here's how Paul said it. 2 Corinthians 4. He said, therefore, I know Apollos rocks, but having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, no one believes. It is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the godless world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. 
For what we proclaim is not ourselves. It's not Sam. It's not Damascus Road. It is Jesus Christ as Lord. With ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. We are simple proclaimers and preachers. And if we really believe that the power to change a heart, the power to transform a life, to open the eyes of the blind, to set free those who are enslaved, doesn't rest with me, but rests with preaching the gospel, we will tell everyone. You will tell your family members, you will tell your friends, you will tell your neighbors, and you will tell it without any pressure. Because God is the one that changes. And your responsibility is simply to open your mouth and watch that power take hold and then invite them to be part of the family that they've been adopted into by faith. And let them enjoy being a part of a family of families, of disciples who love Jesus, who gather to adore Jesus, to learn about Jesus so that we can go together in the name of Jesus. That is what our church is about. That's what any church is about. And if you're a Christian, that is what you're supposed to be about. We take communion every Sunday to remind us of that truth. Communion is supposed to be the unifying aspect of the service. It's not the sermon. It's not the worship. It's not the 60 seconds of awkward, though that certainly feels like it, right? It is coming together for what is a family meal. We partake of the same bread and the same cup. And we're reminded with one voice we declare, we are sinners. I am, you are, we are sinners. And we come and we partake of the bread and dip in the cup to say, we together are saved by grace through faith in what Jesus has done. And we're reminded that we are not just saved full personal faith in Jesus, we are saved as part of a family and that's how we take it together. So I pray you'll remember that we are about one thing and that is Jesus Christ. His mission, not ours. His preferences, not ours. His experience, not 